The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. When it comes to optimizing performance, it's all about maximizing potential of your leaders. Ally Business Coaching can give you the practical edge you seek. Ally Business Coaching, building great leaders inside great companies. Visit them at allybusinesscoaching.com. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, where we bring you the world's most brilliant thinkers and experts to talk about how to make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits. This is the show where we're not afraid of talking about love, love in a business sense, the kind of love that pushes against the dehumanizing forces of fear bureaucracy, greed, coercion, all those domineering management practices and philosophies that crush the human spirit. And love and action in the context of today's episode is about purpose. Do you have a purpose? Does your organization? What about the very work that you do? Does it have a purpose? According to my guest today, Purpose has practical implications for a lot of things, including a company's financial health and competitiveness. And on a personal level, people who find meaning in their work, they give it their all, their energy, their dedication, their commitment. When there's purpose, people grow rather than stagnate. They do more and they do it better. And because of that, they thrive. And because they thrive, their companies will thrive. So that brings me to a fantastic book released last year called The Economics of Higher Purpose, which is co-authored by Bob Quinn and Anjan Thacker. The authors show that when an authentic higher purpose permeates your business strategy and your decision-making processes, everyone becomes fully engaged in their work. Now, this is interesting to me because as we feel that there's a higher purpose in what we do and how we operate, when there's that an inspiring goal that we all share, we just work better together. And there's also the business case for higher purpose because those companies do very well financially and typically outperform the competition. I'm pleased to tell you that Bob Quinn is here to tell us how to shift from a transaction-oriented mindset to a purpose-oriented mindset focused on possibility. Bob Quinn is the Margaret Elliott Tracy Collegiate Professor Emeritus at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. His research and writing focus on purpose, leadership, culture, and change. He is one of the co-founders of the field of positive organizational scholarship and a co-founder of the Ross Center for Positive Organizations. And in terms of research, Bob is in the top 1% of professors cited in organizational behavior textbooks. 
He has published 18 books. And as a teacher, Bob is the recipient of multiple awards. And in a global survey, he was recently named one of the top speakers in the world on the topic of organizational culture and related issues. His Google talk on personal purpose went viral and has been viewed by over 16 million people. Truly an honor to have you here, Bob. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. It's my pleasure. (laughs) So we always start with a human moment on the show. And that is what makes you smile, Bob, when you get up in the morning these days? You know, every morning I write an entry in a gratitude journal. And the entry I wrote this morning was about a conversation I had last night with a woman who was trying to find her personal purpose in life. And what I wrote about was that enormous connection uh, when two human beings are trying to find out something very important together and establish an incredibly meaningful connection. Mm. And I think that connects back to what you're all about. I think that's love at work. Mm. And that very much gets me up in the morning. Yeah, that's great. I have reason to believe, Bob, that that's what we're all about as human beings. When we start to get down to the core of who we are as people, it's kind of hard not to operate with love. Some people don't call it that. You can call it care. But I think that deep down inside, we're wired for it. And we just don't see it enough in the workplace. So I'm thrilled that you're here. And I want our listeners to get more acquainted with you. Now, so you just told us what makes you smile in the morning. Tell us what gets you up in the morning. What's your why, your purpose? Uh, Three words. Inspire, positive, change. I could talk about each of those three words for two hours each, (laughs) and I can be in a very sad context, and I repeat those three words, and I light up like a light bulb. That's why I'm on the planet, to inspire positive change. I love it. I love it. Well, the book, I love the book, Bob. So I'm going to give a background for how you arrived at the book. And it's based on a widely acclaimed Harvard Business Review article, Creating a Purpose Driven Organization. So you and your co author wrote that two years ago. Was the book in the works when the article was written? Yes, we had already done the research on the book. And we started out with the article as kind of the. capturing the essence of what we found in the research. And then after finishing the article, we then started to do the elaboration into the full book. Yeah. Yeah. So give us sort of the 30,000 foot view of the book. Well, what's the big idea here for just learning about it? What's the book about? Well, maybe I could tell you a story that captures that. We were uh, almost 10 years ago now, Anjan, who's a world-class economist, was receiving an award, and I went to the event in St. Louis to support him. And just prior to the event, we got into a conversation about an experience I had just had in building what I call a positive organization and described all the incredible outcomes. He listened very, very carefully. And in the middle of the event, there was an intermission. He came down off the rostrum came through this huge crowd. He grabbed me. He says, I can't stop thinking about your story. Your story's impossible. Can't be true. According to economic theory, the story cannot be true. We have to write a paper. And so 
that launched a long process of writing a very sophisticated academic paper, all in math, presenting a theory of a conventional organization according to economic assumptions. It was basically a simulated organization. And it was based on a central notion that sounds complicated, but it's not. I'll try to make it simple. It's called the principal agent process problem. In economics, the basic assumption is I hire you and promise to give you 10 units of wealth and you promise to give me 10 units of labor. As long as I'm there to watch you, there's no problem. The moment I turn my back, the incentive on your part is to underperform the contract. That's called the principal agent problem. And it's been the foundation of Nobel Prizes. It's a central concept of microeconomics. The fundamental notion of the book, or what we found in that academic study that became the central notion, is the moment in the simulation that we mathematically changed from external rewards, principal agent processes, to purpose, to higher purpose the organization, every member of the workforce was transformed into an owner. They were no longer agents. They were principals. And Anjan got incredibly excited about that. He said, we have to go interview CEOs of purpose-driven companies. And I said, okay, let's go do that. And that's when I got my huge surprise. The people we interviewed, more than half of them, when they first became CEO, did not believe in people, purpose, or culture. They were operating from a set of assumptions that we all understand. It was only through a crisis that they came to believe in purpose, people, and culture. And only then did the organization change. And that's the very essence of the book. Hmm. I can't wait to get into the crisis part of it, but let's set the foundation for what's the impact of higher purpose. So I have two questions. The first one is on the personal level. What difference does higher purpose make in people's lives? It makes all the difference. Most people have a job. Some people have a career. We understand that, you know, because it's so common. Very few people have a calling, right? But to have a higher purpose is to have a calling in life. Your work becomes your purpose. The moment that happens, everything changes because you're now living from intrinsic rather than extrinsic motivation. And at that point, Maslow said this years ago, labor becomes love. Mm. When you're doing what you love, you don't work, right? And people say, oh, that's mumbo jumbo. That's because we live in normal economic thinking. But everywhere we turn, we find people who know the purpose in life and they live a very different life than others. In fact, research clearly shows this unbelievably long list of positive outcomes for people who are purpose-driven. They live longer. They're less likely to have numerous diseases. They uh, have better relationships. They make more money. The list goes on and on and on. What that list says to me is you and I are designed to be a purpose-seeking mechanism. Yet most people are living reactive lives. They're not living by higher purpose. Hmm. 
So let's bring this out further and talk about organizations of higher purpose. What difference does that make in those organizations? There's considerable, well, there's growing body of research, would be a more accurate statement, that shows that purpose-driven organizations have highly engaged workforces and they make more money. So when you started the show by saying, I'm interested in profit and I'm interested in relationships, that research is showing that those two things go together. The logical mind says, are you a people person or are you a task person who gets things done? We can't put those two categories together at the logical level. But in fact, in reality, people put them together all the time. And when you do, we get very impressive results. Yeah. So you have interviewed so many leaders at some of the biggest companies in the world. Is there a, a leader that for you really stands out that you can confidently say, okay, this person embodies the principles of higher purpose? Every leader that we interviewed fits that description. And that's really important because the very question you just asked reflects an assumption that exists in the listeners today. Well, that doesn't happen, right? There are no such people. When in fact, they're everywhere. One of the exercises that we do with executives at Ross all the time is I ask them to identify the one person in their life that left the most positive legacy. So they say, oh, that was my mother. That was my third grade teacher. That was my coach in high school, my first boss. Then we have them share their stories about this person with each other. And then we ask, what did those people have in common? And this list comes out every time with a certain set of characteristics that always pops up. And it's these people were purpose-driven. They had a higher purpose. They were people of high integrity. They cared about me. They were selfless. They connected me to a higher future. And they constantly challenged me to think for myself. Those characteristics are always there. Now, the point of that, because in most business schools, if you teach transformational leadership, you put up a picture of Jack Welch or Steve Jobs or some big person that's on the cover of Time magazine. And when we debrief that exercise, I say, I didn't put up a picture because the moment you put up a picture, if you put up Jack Welch's picture, someone instantaneously raises their hand and says, Jack Welch cheated on his wife. That is, you and I have a need to denigrate any example that goes up. And we can find them because being a leader does not mean you're perfect. It means you're full of flaws, but you're pursuing a purpose. Mm. But we denigrate them. And so I say, I just played a trick on you. I didn't put up Jack Welch or Steve Jobs. I put up your mother. I put up your coach, your third grade teacher. These are people that you know. They're not people on the cover of Time magazine. They're rare people, one in a hundred. But we have hundreds of thousands of people that we meet. So they're rare, but frequent. Around us are purpose-driven people. They're real. We have purpose-driven organizations. They're real. If it's real, if it exists in the real world, that means it's possible. Mm. People don't want to hear that. Because there's enormous accountability in accepting it, but it's real and it's possible. Mm. So powerful. Let's talk about uh, organizations in the time of crisis. 
because we're in the middle of many crises all converging at the same time. I'm going to take this from one of the blogs that you have written recently. How an organization responds in a crisis is a function of the culture created prior to the crisis. (laughs) I love that. So in your words, you said those organizations are harvesting their rewards. I want to ask you for a good illustration of a company that has done just that. And we'll do it after this short message. Don't go away. Today's proud sponsor, Ally Business Coaching, is a brand that I stand behind. This leadership development firm is helping catapult companies into a brighter future with their five-star program. Through an individual customized course with live coaching presented in virtual meeting rooms, Ally is producing spectacular results for their clients. Their ABC course sets the stage for your people to increase self-awareness, learn leadership techniques that fit their personalities, understand others better, improve communication, and build trust. Coaching has been proven to be the most effective way to improve people's abilities. And now it's easier and more cost-effective than ever before to participate in high-level, high-value coaching. Learn more about their five-star program at www.allybusinesscoaching.com. Ally Business Coaching, building great leaders inside great companies. We're back. So, Bob, what have you seen as a great example of a, a company culture that is responding to crisis? Well, this happens all the time. I think of Reuters when the dot-com bubble burst, their stock price went from, I think it was like 91 pounds to 1.5 pounds overnight. Now, how do you survive that? You know, it's, it's unbelievable. And Tom Gloser, who was the CEO, talked to me. We had spent the last three years previous to that taking almost all of his senior people, about 1,000 of them, through a week-long training program in positive leadership. And when the crisis was ending, one of the statements he made was, the thing that saved us was the Michigan program. Now, I was shocked by that. I said, Tom, what what do you mean by that? He said, in that program, we taught people how to think differently, and we connected them in very thick networks. When that crisis occurs... It cannot be managed. You cannot manage a crisis from the top because thousands of decisions have to be made instantaneously and simultaneously across the world. And you can't tell people what to decide. So the only thing you have is your culture and the hope that they'll do the right thing. He said, our people immediately got on the phone. People in Johannesburg were calling people in Hong Kong because they were connected. Mm. And they had a set of values. He said, most of them, most of the time, made the right decisions. And they gave us back our company. So the culture you create before you go in is what determines what happens when that crisis hits. So I mentioned, you know, the extraordinary times. So let's expand on that. So we got a global pandemic economic hardship as a result. And then on top of that, throw in racial injustice. And that's just in the last five months. What does your work say 
for people just trying to cope with the crisis that we're experiencing? Yeah, let me first of all say that in 74 years of life, this is without question the most tumultuous period that I have lived through. Now, I was born just as World War II ended. And I think this is at the exact same level as World War II, where everybody was vulnerable across the entire planet. And so this is an extraordinary time, but it's simply representative of all crises. Now, in crisis, we desperately need a leader to do something. And we haven't seen very much of this from any of our world leaders. <laughs> but the purpose of a leader is to connect people to their purpose. It's to tie and bind people together in pursuit of a new and better future. Now, just think of when the pandemic hit. We had a set of world leaders who had an opportunity. You could have had the president of the United States or the premier of China or someone from Italy, any country, that person could have stood up and said, this is not an Italian problem. This is not a Chinese problem. This is not an American problem. This is a human problem. And as the leader of this country, we're going to sacrifice, put resources aside so that scientists from every country can go into the following new network and share information every day, and we can process this. We're going to create a task force that is constantly surfacing this information, which will be wrong on many days because this is a crisis. But we're going to be flexible and we're going to keep learning and we're going to tell you only the truth as we know it. We're not going to become political. We're not going to posture. We're not going to politicize every act. We're going to learn together with you constantly clarifying where it is we think we need to go. And we're going to listen to you as we share. That's what a leader in crisis does. That's not what we often see in crisis. People go back to their routines and do what they've learned to do all their lives. And in this case, I think most people would agree we're worse off. They would argue vehemently for or against a given political leader according to their ideology. But I think in the end, most would agree we haven't seen much of what it is we need. Mm. Bob, I want to get into the practical side of the book, and that's part two of the book. And you, you offer eight steps for creating a purpose-driven organization. I want to touch on a couple of them. The first one is step three, meet the need for authenticity. You know, people often make the typical assumptions that authenticity is about, you know, just being honest or telling the truth and giving facts. But it's more than that, is it not? You're referring to the eight steps for creating a purpose-driven organization, and we call them the eight counterintuitive steps. And that word counterintuitive is important because everything we say in the book is different than what executives tend to do. Now, one of the differences is the one you're raising. So, you know, the first one is envision the workforce of excellence. Well, we don't do that. We envision people through the principal agent problem. They're not going to live up to what we expect. So we have to control them. That's a given. It's a fact of life in conventional thinking. The second is we don't dictate the purpose. We discover it. 
well, that's crazy. What do you mean discovered? Well, it already exists. It's through listening, reflection, and conversation that a leader discovers that purpose. Well, that's counterintuitive as well. But three and four, three is the authenticity principle. We have often said the most important word in our book is authenticity. And the reason is there is pressure today on every company to say what their purpose is. And 85% of the Fortune 500 on their websites have some purpose statement now. The problem is that it's hypocritical. That is, what happens is I put some pressure on you as a board member or whoever to come up with the statement. So as a CEO, you say, oh, this is another item on my checklist. And you do what you do to all the other items, you problem solve. So you create a task force, you do whatever you do. And then you come up with some words, you put them on a plastic display and you put it up on the walls. And I walk into your company, I go to the cafeteria and I stop with the clerk at the cashier and I say, hey, what's that up on the wall? And she rolls her eyes. Now, that rolling of the eyes is a very significant message. That is, in most companies, we have words on the wall and everybody from the clerk to the senior vice president knows that the words aren't real. They know that it's hypocrisy. So what you've done by putting out your purpose statement is you've just made your company worse off. You've lifted the level of cynicism. You've done positive damage to the company. And that's what happens in most companies because the conventional thought process does not allow an executive to think about having an authentic purpose. An authentic purpose is the arbitrator of every decision. I'll give you an illustration. I was at a company in Ohio, and there was a meeting, and there was this mid-level woman speaking, and she told a brief story. She said, this morning I was in a meeting with my boss. He said, we're going to do X. And I said, no, we're not. And when she said that, every head in the meeting snapped and looked at her. She said, I told him, no, we're not going to do that. That is not consistent with our purpose. And the boss said, oh, you're right. Now, at that moment, the CEO was sitting next to me, leaned in, and he said, see what I mean? When you have an authentic higher purpose, it's the arbiter of every decision. That means every single person's empowered. So that mid-level woman's telling her boss no. And her boss is saying, oh, yeah, you're right. Well, how often does that happen in an organization that's dominated by classical economic principles? It doesn't because we live in a transactional world. And the average executive can't even envision that. You and I don't believe in authentic communication. We believe that in every conversation at work, we have to filter what your agenda is when you're talking to me, mm. right? Because you're self-interested. I expect to hear distortions and lies all the time. And in this crisis that you just referred to in our society today, the lies are just ubiquitous. And so we're always, you know, so we don't believe in authentic communication, right? Mm -hmm. To bring that to the organization would be counterintuitive, right? And then one that goes with it, that fourth one, because I think you are interested in this one as well, is constancy. And Tony Miola of Bank of America, who was an extraordinary leader, he said, if you know what your purpose is, and if you as the executive 
are absolutely constant about it. So it's the arbitrary decision and it's constant. He said, your culture will change. It will evolve if it's constant. Most people can't imagine having a purpose and being constant about it every day, holding people accountable to it every day. Because we live in a world of convenience. Problem here, problem there. Solve this one, solve this one the easiest way possible. A purpose holds us accountable to do hard things not convenient things. But when we do hard things, those are very powerful signals to the culture that it's changing and moving in a positive direction. Those things are not easily accessible to the managerial mind. They're not taught in business school. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So bring this authenticity question full circle on the performance side. What role does authenticity play in in a high performance organization? Well, If you speak to me from your heart as well as your head, if you're transparent because you're always putting our common good ahead of your personal good, that is you're sacrificing for this conversation, this team, this division, I can trust you. If I trust you, then our transaction costs just went down dramatically. If we pursue a purpose together, you and I can co-create new knowledge as we move forward into uncertainty. And we can do it at very high levels of collaboration. It's almost like a dance. If you look at any great team, a sports team, a business team, any kind of team that is performing with excellence, you will see transformative collaboration. And that transformative collaboration defies the assumptions of common economics and the theories that we live by in professional organizations. Yeah. I have seen it. I have lived it. When organizations or teams are more authentic and real with one another, Bob, the trust is off the charts. And when that happens, I see more creativity play out, more innovation. And obviously, those things lead to results is really what you're saying. Is that not? That's a big part of the equation. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about step seven. And that is connect the people to the purpose. This is a big one for me because as a coach and as a leadership development practitioner, I'm always trying to help teach people or people in management roles how to do that. So easier said than done. But how do managers practically down in the trenches connect the people to the purpose? The vast majority do not. Mm. It's consistent failure. You know, we talk about the first few steps and the step just before the one you ask is engaging middle management. Moving from the top to the middle is a huge leap. Most companies can't make it. Moving from the top to the bottom is an even bigger leap and most companies can't even conceive of it. And yet one of the most brilliant cases I've ever seen came from KPMG. 30,000 accountants. How do you get purpose to a bunch of accountants, right? And what they did was just brilliant. They went through the, the earlier steps in the model. And then it came to this one. And they said, well, let's create a digital poster. 
and it's got the company purpose. It's got a space for your picture, and that's got a space for your personal purpose at work. And let's ask these people to create one of these posters. And the conventional fear, and executives live in fear, was, what if they don't do it? We'll look silly. There's a lot of hand wringing, right? They said, well, we'll invite them to do this. And if 10,000 of them, we'll invite them in June. If 10,000 of them do it by Thanksgiving, at Christmas, we'll give them two extra days off Thanksgiving for Christmas break. Well, maybe we should do 1,000, not 10,000. And one person in the room said, no, 10,000. So they did. By the 4th of July, not Christmas, 4th of July, they had 10,000 posters. By Thanksgiving, they had over 35,000 posters, and they only had 31,000 employees. (laughs) Some people did too. Some teams did them. The thirst to do this was extraordinary. And so we had accountants saying, I protect America. That's my purpose. When I do an audit, I'm making sure that money's not going to terrorists. When I, and they came up with these amazing statements. You say, oh, that sounds nice, but so what? Well, if you go back and check into that particular case, KPMG jumped a huge movement in the Fortune Best Places to Work list. Their profits went up. The people engaged in all kinds of new behaviors. Engagement scores on surveys went up dramatically. And that happens in every company where this work is done authentically. Very few companies do it. So that means whoever you are that's listening today, you have a golden opportunity because you can do something the CEO you're competing with is terrified to do. Doesn't even want to hear this stuff, right? Because it defies everything they believe in. Hmm. So speak to what they can do. Is there a first step to applying more purpose, whether you're the leader or the individual contributor? The answer is absolutely yes. And it always begins with self-change and integrity. Not with our first knee-jerk reaction. This is something I do to other people. So I hold a task force. I generate a statement and I put it on the wall. I've done my job. Check my checklist. (laughs) It begins with me asking, what's my purpose in life? What's my highest purpose? Is it to make money and die with more money than I have now? Or is it something bigger than that? And is it real? Is it authentic? Am I willing to sacrifice for it? Now, I've done a ton of work. Last night, I was doing this work, as I mentioned, with all kinds of people from every walk of life. And almost all of them think, how can I find a personal purpose? And almost always, we find that higher purpose. And they become thrilled when they find it. Mm. And then the question is, what's the purpose of our company, right? Because now we're talking about a collective purpose. Well, then that takes us to the book. But Am I purpose and value driven? Am I pursuing that purpose and those values in every instance, therefore doing hard things when I could be doing easy things? That's the beginning of the process. And then I I think the book uh, with the eight steps lays it out more clearly than any place else I've ever seen because it grasps the counterintuitive nature of of the process. Mm. 
Bob, we have this tradition here on the show where we talk about love and fear, and we know practical love works when we lift others up and inspire and empower and develop people. You know, the evidence out there is overwhelming that it says it leads to great business outcomes. But fear, which can show up in things like intimidation, control, coercion, can strip people of their ability to be their best. Why do you think people in high positions lead through fear? There's a lot of research now in the biological realm, psychological realm, and they call it polyvagal theory. And it's very intriguing. It says you have an autonomic nervous system. The vagal nerves connect your brain and then down into your major organs. And you've evolved over thousands of years, and three processes occur. The first one, complete collapse. The second is fight or flight. Your body gets energized, cortisol is pumping in your brain, and you go into fight or flight. That's level two. Level three is a very positive state in which you feel safe and able to connect to another human being. And in that state, we get high coordination possibilities and collective creation. Now, this process is really interesting because it happens before feelings and thoughts are that we're aware of. Aware of. This is a primal process. It's going to happen no matter what. So if I'm sitting in an executive meeting and the CEO raises an eyebrow, my autonomic nervous system has already processed that and already started to adjust by me going into a given state. Now, that's very basic, very primary. And we're scanning for threat at all times in every conversation. We've been having the most positive, trusting conversation, but the slightest signal, the slightest move, break in the dance, and I go like this, I see threat. So first of all, you and I are programmed to live in fear. We're seeking safety. We're seeking survival. And because of it, we often don't move above level two. A leader's job is to pull people from level two to level three to create safety and connection. Most people don't believe that's their job. Now, with that in mind, I think of, I was at a Fortune 500 company. A woman said, you know, we have 1,600 executives when I look at them, I see three groups. Group number one is very tiny. It's made up of leaders. Group two is very big. It's made up of managers. They intellectually understand leadership and talk it, but they don't live it. And group three is very tiny. It's made up of a bunch of technicians who probably never understand leadership. I love that because I've watched that for 40 years. So I took that to groups of executives, group after group after group. And I said, is it true in your organization? Yeah. Why? Now, they struggle to answer why. Finally, I changed the question. And I took one group of executives and I said, I'd like you to write down your most authentic question on leading change in your company. Now, that sounds like a different topic, but it opens the door for them to communicate. And I took all their written answers and analyzed them. Here's what I pulled from that. My question is fear. I feel inadequate, and I'm being asked to lead this big change. I have fear of failure. Two, I feel shame. 
my boss is asking me to do something, my customers or my people or somebody's going to suffer because of it, and they won't listen to me. Three, exhaustion. I can't even talk to my children. I don't see them for a week. Where do I find one more minute to make a change? Four, competition. The people in the other silos are competing to move up the hierarchy. They're going to resist my efforts to pull these things together. Five, my boss. My boss says he wants me to change and behaves in ways to prevent me from doing the change. Six, the culture. Cultures function to preserve themselves. Now, I was at one company where we're working very hard to put positive leadership in the culture. CEO is 100% committed. The executives are really working hard to do it. And the topic of fear came up. And these senior people said, I just don't understand why that question won't even emerge. We're trying to build a company. And as we were leaving the meeting, one of the people in the meeting grabbed me by the elbow and said, you want to know the answer to that question? Let me tell you about my meeting with him last Friday and what he did. That is, while we were aspiring to do these things, these things are breaking down all the time. And we're behaving normally. And we create a transactional world. And our autonomic nervous system is deeply aware. No, it's unaware, but it's processing these interactions. And you can't have an organization without fear. That's why leadership exists. To transform that fear into trust. Most executives are indeed managers solving problems, living in rational space, doing analytic work. They are not doing the work of building safety and connection because they don't know how. They've never thought through it. Well stated. Bob, I knew this was going to be a great conversation, but you have exceeded my expectations. (laughs) And we bring it home with one final question, but you close us out with that one thing or a key takeaway from this conversation. What would that be that we can take home with us? Yeah, I think of an article I wrote in the Harvard Business Review a number of years ago. It was called Moments of Greatness. And we wrote a book there also called Lift, The Fundamental State of Leadership. And that work revolves around four basic questions that you and I can ask ourselves in any crisis or any other moment. And if we answer the questions honestly, we will instantaneously transform. Question number one, what result do I want to create? Not what do I want? What I want is to be comfortable. The moment I asked the question, what result do I want to create? Robert Fritz said, it immediately puts us into an alternative state. We're focused now not on the past, but the future. And the only way to get there is to learn. And I'm ready to step into uncertainty and do it. Question two. Am I internally directed? In all of those fears, in all of organization life, I'm externally directed. I'm worried about the CEO lifting his eyebrow. To be internally directed is to know my values and to align with them. The moment I do, I don't have to pretend anymore. I can be authentic with you. Question three is, am I other-focused? Am I living in empathy for you? Do I understand your deepest needs and interests? Question four is, am I externally open? Can I move from pride to humility, see you as an equal now, 
and with purpose, humility, and empathy, co-create a new future with you? Those four questions are transformational. If you take those questions and make them an internal discipline, you will live at a higher level of life. We've had many hundreds of people do that, and it's a very simple concept. The book is called The Economics of Higher Purpose. He is the Honorable Bob Quinn. I thank you, sir, for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. If people want to connect with you, where do they go? Uh, website, Robert E. Quinn. There's a blog, The Positive Organization at wordpress.com. And there's a course available, 100 days, three minutes a day, that is all story-based and allows you to rethink yourself every day. It's called Becoming Who You Really Are. And you can find that at the website at Executive Education at the Ross School of Business. Thank you, Bob, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure. A big thank you to today's sponsor, Ally Business Coaching. I'm in deep gratitude to this amazing company. This show would not be possible without them. When it comes to optimizing performance, it's all about maximizing potential of your leaders. Ally Business Coaching can give you the practical edge you need. Ally Business Coaching building great leaders inside great companies. If you need high-level executive and leadership coaching, they are one of the best in the business. Visit them at ally, that's A-L-L-Y, businesscoaching.com. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.